From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Wadsmith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. We have reached the end of another season of Democracy Works, and as is customary, we're going to take a break from our usual format and talk about some of what's been happening in politics and in conversations about democracy more broadly over the last couple of months. We tend not to talk too much about the day-to-day of politics in our normal episodes, but I think there has been a lot that's happened, as we'll get into, and give everybody some things to think about and to watch out for through the rest of the summer. So I think we're going to start with North Carolina. Candace, you live and work in North Carolina and mentioned it briefly last time. Tell us a little bit about what's been happening there for folks who might not have been following. Sure. So, you know, the day-to-day is where the rubber hits the road. And I think that North Carolina's state legislature, its judicial system, um, is really shining a light on the work of folks like Jake Grumbach, who show that some states can be more democratic or less democratic than others. And North Carolina's shenanigans reveals that North Carolina is not necessarily wanting, or its legislature is not necessarily wanting North Carolina to be a full-on democracy. Um, And we can see this in its kind of whiplash moves around abortion and voting uh, and gerrymandering in higher education. I can go on and on, but I think even if we kind of break down each one of these, we can see also how these are all connected, how the the ways that we allow people to vote, um, under what circumstances, under what districting rules can influence things that are seemingly as far flung as abortion, how democratic institutions can be used for undemocratic means. Um, so it's it's really quite wild to um, be watching North Carolina's politics in real time, and it's actually quite disheartening. Well, and it's, it's not just in North Carolina, is it, right? I mean, you see very similar legislative agendas in, you know, just about every red state. And and really, North Carolina is probably one of the most purple of, of those states yep. that you were talking about, right? Um, Florida had a six-week ban on abortion. And Texas, we see the same kind of efforts towards transgender rights. And you see that in Nebraska and Iowa. And I mean, you know, basically, if it's a red state, you see these, these initiatives. And, you know, I mean, I, I was really striving to avoid my, you know, geek inclination to make this kind of horse race-y, right? Because these these issues are going to have implications for 2024. But I think you're you what you're talking about, Candace, is the is that there is some kind of um more fundamental way of understanding what's going on here. And it is striking how much of this is cultural, right? Um, You know, the argument about the Trumpian, you know, wave in 2016 was that people felt like they were shut out economically. But you don't hear anything about that. You don't hear anything about inflation. These are issues about where, you know, a broad swath of the American body politic feels like their values are being rejected and spurned, and they were trying to take it back. 
But my sense is that what unites all this in all these red states is the idea that there's this cultural resentment about where the culture is going and they don't like it. And they see the, the demographic handwriting on the wall and they're doing everything they can to stop it or at least slow it down. Yeah, I mean, just to, you know, bring it back to my home state, North Carolina is a place that it is very purple. Um, the Supreme Court has already decided that it does not care if there are extreme partisan maps and to let it go to the states. The North Carolina State Supreme Court, not that long ago, said that it would not allow for extreme partisan gerrymandering. And then there was an election, and we have a new makeup of the North Carolina Supreme Court, which then overturned its own past rulings and in a kind of historic way that it has almost never returned to a previous decision. And in this case, of all of the decisions that it could come back on, it came back on two. One was to allow partisan gerrymandering, and the other was to allow for voter ID. So here we see how we have, one, I think we see that we almost never look at the judiciary. And here we're going to, it's going to, right, we have this kind of powerful sweep, and it's going to have lasting effects. Republicans could make... um, as many as 11 out of 14 seats be Republican seats in North Carolina. <laughs> and and it will be perfectly legal. And there's nothing to be done about it. Yeah. Uh, so, and it, and you know, it, this is this is the kind of thing that we're in. And, you know, for Alito and Dobbs to mm-hmm. say that we should just go back to the states and let people vote for what they want mm-hmm. is ASA 9, it's ASA 10, it's ASA 11. And it's unrealistic because of this kind of situation uh-huh. that North Carolinians are not going to necessarily be able to have their voices heard, even in its own state legislature. And then to put on top that we have representatives switching parties. Mm-hmm. Well, just one, right? Running roughshod on their own constituents. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, your kind of argument about this cultural resentment, I think there's also a matter of ego. Mm-hmm. And we see um, people's ego being more important than representing, you know, their constituents. And we see this in the House, too. I mean, we can talk about McCarthy and the debt ceiling in a minute. But I think that what's happening is that People are more concerned about their own status, about their own potential professional growth, and not necessarily thinking about the long-term ramifications for representative democracy. Well, you know, I mean... Or health, or voting, or education, (laughs) or anything else. I mean, I don't think... That is unique to Republicans. I mean, I think that's kind of a, the, a politician is is somebody who puts their own self interest ahead of every other consideration. And, no, and hold on now. I okay. 
maybe it's not a Republican thing, but I do think that there is something about the extent to which there is a lack of forbearance. Uh, Well, no, that's absolutely true. So you can be self-interested and be, you know, and lead within a particular set of constraints, but to just kind of all out disregard any norms or constraints that you're doing things because you can, Mm -hmm. not because Mm -hmm. they're the right thing to do, not because you think it's the moral thing to do, not because you think it's the economically viable thing to do. You're doing it because you can. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't disagree with that. I I mean, I think when you look at what happened to Merrick Garland, that's the only explanation there is. And, And you hear these explanations and you're like, who are you convincing? And it's like, they don't really see any need to convince people. We can do this, therefore we're going to do it. And and if I got to put some, you know, fig leaf explanation to account for it, fine, but you don't take it seriously and neither do I. So, you know, Chris, I'm reminded of the, the conversation we had on the show with Francis Lee, uh, who studies congressional behavior and legislators' motivations. And something she said that really stuck with me and I think is relevant to this conversation is that There are, I believe, twice as many, if not a higher ratio of communication staff to legislative or policy staff in Congress. So the only thing that matters or that that signals where the priorities are, right? Mm -hmm. It's getting your message out. And it doesn't really matter what the actions are, what you do, what you don't do, as long as you can kind of put something out from a, a communications perspective that it says the right things to your base and to the media outlets where you know that you are going to get traction on. So, you know, that is, I think we're really seeing that manifest itself at the federal level, certainly what Francis studies, but I think it's also trickling down to the states, which is what, you know, Jake and others have been studying as well. No, that's right. But I, the one thing that what Candace is saying that I think is really critical for reviewing or for assessing this, you know, the lay of the land for 2024 is that there's going to be a backlash. I mean, a a democratic backlash. We've seen it, right? We saw it in the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. And so that's going to happen, but it's only going to happen in the states where there is some preservation of popular, popular will being expressed through the electoral process. That and, if, and if you have, um, you know, the game rigged to the point where that's not happening and that's tough, and then you bring that to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says that's not happening and that's tough, well, then you're and you 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 just you, you institutionalize this bifurcation that's going on within the nation. And, and it ex- exactly speaks to this point of the red states getting redder and the blue states getting blue. Yeah. So given that voting um, is really at the center here and the Supreme Court has over the past decade made a concerted effort to chip away at the Voting Rights Act we probably shouldn't expect it to do anything helpful in its upcoming decisions, including Merrill versus Mulligan, which is about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And it's really um, kind of one of the last major legs standing, which Roberts in 
the majority decision in Holder um, and Shelby versus Holder noted, well, it's okay that we've struck down the preclearance formula because you still can use Section 2. And Alabama has created a map that packs up all the Black folks in Alabama basically in one district, and then it cracks them otherwise to dilute their voting power. And so, you know, there's a call to fix this. And Alabama has the audacity to say, well, in order to fix the map, we would have to consider race. And it is unconstitutional to consider race when making decisions. And it's like, are you freaking kidding me? I just don't see a path with this court that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act isn't going to just be chipped away even further for whatever John Roberts' dream of anti, his anti-voting dreams are. I just, I don't get that guy. But again, we're just essentially saying that this idea that the Supreme Court says, let's put it back to the states and then you can vote. And then it's doing all of these things to prevent constituencies that have very particular political, not not ideologies, that's not, they, that, that have uh, shared, you know, political concerns are just being again, run roughshod. You know, I think I do understand what John Roberts is thinking. And I don't think it's that different from a lot of other legislative initiatives we see throughout, especially red states. You know, Voting Rights Act, which, you know, we need to stipulate is well, at least was <laughs> until like maybe 2010, nearly universally regarded as one of the greatest legislative achievements in the history of the United States of America. That's the moment when the United States became a genuine democracy, yeah. not the Declaration of Independence, not the, not the uh, uh, Civil War Amendments, Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, it is also true that the Voting Rights Act was understood at the time to be um, working to rectify um, injustices that were built in to this, what was it, six or seven states that were identified in, in the legislation. And so you had to take race into account in order to make race no longer into account, in order to make it genuinely equal. And what Roberts said with Holden was, all right, well, we're here. We're here. This is what we need to do. And we don't have to worry. And we, this artificial structure that we're using to fix the problem of race uh, we've reached it, and so it's okay now. Well, and I think when it comes to the court, we'll see we see it in affirmative action too, which is another right. case. Back to my home state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It will not be beat. So the affirmative action cases um, we will probably hear in June, um, and essentially the argument is that it is um, we have come to a time when considering race among some 
other series of holistic factors is unnecessary uh, in college admissions. And there's one argument that from Harvard that this issue is unfair to Asian Americans. UNC's case says that the consideration of race is unfair to white students in North Carolina. And 25 years ago-ish, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote that in 25 years, we should not need to use race anymore. All right. Again, another kind of temporary. Um, and so, you know, here we have an opportunity uh, with a 6-3 majority to live out our raceless American dream. Mm-hmm. Um, the schools uh, in states, uh, Michigan and California, have both written to the Supreme Court to say, if you eliminate the use of race, as we have done in our states, colleges across the United States will be changed in a way that is detrimental to its students because there are no other alternatives to increasing diversity in the way that you would like to see it without acknowledging race of applicants or the student body. And so these are two states that have, you know, tried it and they've seen their student populations change drastically. And if there, you know, is a value of diversity, those states have argued that they are not actually able to really, their students are not really able to experience that. So that's where we are. In the oral arguments about this case, I don't remember whether it was Alito or Thomas, but one of them said something to the effect of like, well, I don't even know what you mean when you say diversity is. It was a, Clarence a Thomas. It was Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Yes. I don't even know what you mean when you're saying diversity is a value. Yeah. I mean, I have, you know, written about diversity as in the way that it is largely used as being problematic. And so I'm not saying that Clarence Thomas is right. I'm saying that he's right, but for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and just to kind of take a step back, I would say that we'll remember that the reason why we had affirmative action in the first place was for justice and was for remedying past discrimination. And diversity became the kind of new reason and rationale for affirmative action. And in my view is to some degree, a watered-down rationale in comparison to justice Mm. and remedying discrimination. But on the other hand, I'll take it because (laughs) it's better than nothing, Right. which is what we may have moving forward. You know, I now am an administrator, and I'm watching people just really kind of think hard about what is our next move, that if schools do indeed care about diversity and seek to maintain that without having the tools necessary that makes it, uh, to make it... A factor in admissions. Yeah, a factor Mm -hmm. in admissions. But also, you know, we can do more, I mean... Michigan and California, they have changed their recruitment strategies. They have tried, they have tried and tried and tried um, to almost no avail. And so, you know, just kind of being in an administrative post and really thinking through, well, what is it that we're going to have to do 
to maintain our values and to live out our values. The Supreme Court makes it hard. And, you know, I teach at, I have only taught at actually very excellent schools across the country. And so I have taught people who are now leaders and our government and their, you know, international students who are in their own governments. This is high stakes Mm -hmm. that if we really care about ensuring that our representative institutions have well-educated, empathetic, well-versed people who are able to see different perspectives, who are able to understand where people are coming from, to uh, involve themselves in difficult conversations with people who aren't like them. If that is, I mean, college is one of the few places where that happens. And, you know, maybe, just maybe the Supreme Court will surprise us, but it probably will not. And the ramifications are going to be deep and long lasting. So as if all of that in the Supreme Court wasn't enough, maybe a more urgent thing, even before we get those decisions in June, here as we record this on May 22nd, we're waiting to hear what happens with negotiations over the debt ceiling. It's been a a back and forth between Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy and, and their respective teams. And as I understand it, June 1st is the kind of drop dead date that Janet Yellen has been saying. So, yeah, what are the kind of political ramifications? We just don't know. And and I don't want to assume anything. But in the context of 2024, if this, you know, I mean, you know, of course, if this does not pass and we default on our debt, the effects on the world and the effects on the nation will be genuinely catastrophic. And, you know, it will basically completely upend any talk about 2024. But even if it goes down to the last minute, last time this happened, Moody's reduced the the credit rating in the United States. And that cost everyday Americans, you know, a great deal of money because their interest rates were higher. That could happen. And And actually, you know, the closer we get, it's, you know, we're talking nine days um, and that could that could happen. And so the bricksmanship here and the um, the the cavalier, um, you know, acting as if this is real politics or mere politics where we're just fighting over over legislation without recognizing, you know, that we're not playing with fire. We're playing with, you know, a nuclear warhead. Uh, it's just, it's just really striking to me. I think it's just, it's dumb. It is and dumb. Because <laughs> it's, it's completely unnecessary. It's completely unnecessary. I think for me, what stands out is that Kevin McCarthy has put himself into a position where any one Republican can initiate a motion to vacate. Well, he had no choice, right? He wasn't going to get elected speaker without doing that. But yes, he has done Yes, but my point is, is that he was willing to do all of that for what? Ego. So now he's treating the debt ceiling like, you know, like the Freedom Caucus treated the speakership. So we're just, I mean, yes, are we going to get through this? 
probably is it, you know, people just doing brinksmanship, playing chicken? Okay. But it's a bad look. Yeah. And it makes the United States look like we do not know how to do business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're just going to go from one desperate situation to another because McCarthy essentially has allowed you know, his own position to be held hostage by the right wing of the GOP. And we're going to see things like this again and again. Why? For ego? You know, I think the the point that this is dumb needs to be reiterated, right? We put our nation, we put ourselves in this position every two years for no good reason. The money's been spent and the and the Constitution says that the United States will not default. So why are we having this conversation? And why are we allowing 20 people in the Freedom Caucus to hold a gun to the head, not just of the American economy, but the world economy? Yeah. I'm reminded of uh, the line from succession we're not serious people right yeah. it seems like there's a Tom lot Dickens of that said that too and, and going around yeah you know the answer to this when i asked guests on the show there's all these anti-democratic forces that we've talked about in this and our other episodes and the answer is always vote and you know i guess i just wonder like at what point are we at past the line of demarcation or is the system kind of so corrupt or perverse that there's just this cycle of unseriousness and ego that we've been talking about is going to keep perpetuating regardless of, you know, who gets voted or the extent to which people can even vote for candidates that they, you know, deem to not have those qualities that we've been talking about thus far. Not the most optimistic place to end, maybe, but that's the kind of overarching question that I've been thinking about as as we've been talking. I guess there's two things that come to my mind. One is that what's the alternative? Um, If it's not voting, then what? Mm -hmm. The second is that I have to believe in my heart of hearts that the United States has seen worse times, you know, times that people thought that we would never get out of. And I'm mostly thinking about like slavery Hmm. (laughs) and that, you know, that I'm sure that there is someone in 1790 who could not see 1865 pull up. And that time marked a significant change that nobody could have predicted years before Reconstruction. And so I I guess what I'm saying is, is that I have to believe that maybe things will get worse, but maybe things will get better. All right. I think I have two points as well. First is I'm actually kind of pleased that we haven't brought up Donald Trump's name to this point. But, you know, when you're talking about, you know, we are not serious. Um, you know, Trump's CNN town hall was just, you know, I mean, made that argument just in spades, right? I mean, there's no, you know, he is the 
epitome of unseriousness and and makes these claims and lies with abandon and without the least amount of concern for the truth, let alone notions like integrity or honesty or anything like that. And so as long as this individual sets the marching order for one political party, and I don't know that I see a lot of prospect for that changing in 2024. You know, as a politician in the Republican Party, I don't know how you possibly win the nomination while alienating 40, 35 percent of your voting base who um, simply will not abandon Trump, will not cease to see him as anything but the savior of the republic. But then on top of that, you know, where do we go, you know, beyond that? How do you have a campaign? How do you have an election when one party is just beholden to this lack of integrity, right? Of just saying what's true and of acknowledging the existence of facts, So, yeah, that makes me very, very nervous about 2024 and beyond. The only other thing I would say is, you know, I mean, I'm not, this is not the note we can end on because it's so self-serving. But I wrote a book about this. I mean, we cannot allow the the problems within our culture to to, um, give us, the carte blanche to abandon seriousness in our own lives. And how we do that is a challenge and a question, but we all have responsibility ultimately for ourselves and how we behave and the choices we make. And there is no, there's nothing legitimate about saying, well, you know, there's no seriousness in the culture. I don't know why I should be serious. And so I would, you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to change the culture, start with yourself and start with your own interactions and start with your own demands on yourself. And if nothing else, you have the benefit of making yourself a better person, whether or not it works politically. Well, I actually think that's a fine note to end on. <laughs> we did we did talk about your book, uh, well, you had an interview with Future Hindsight that we aired this yeah. season. So if folks haven't listened to that, they can go back and check it out. Listeners, if you have ideas for things you want us to talk about, scholars whose work is interesting or topics you think that we talk too much about or don't talk enough about, we are always open for suggestions. Um, you can find how to contact us on the website, democracyworkspodcast.com. And thank you, as always, to our team at WPSU for making these episodes happen and helping us get them out through the NPR network. Thank you to both of you, Candice and Chris, for all you do to prepare for the episodes and bring such valuable insights to our listeners uh, well, every episode. All right, let and me also just thank- stop you right there and oh, say right? <laughs> that, that Jenna is the one who makes this, who runs a machine. We just show up and blather, no, which I is kind say. of, you know, 90% of what it means to be an academic. But in this case, Jenna keeps us in line. And I've also said many times, I'm, I sound much smarter after Jenna's edits than ah. I do before. And I know uh, Kansas would say the same. Yeah. So. I would. 
Well, thank you. Uh, and thank you as well to Michael Berkman, who was on sabbatical this semester, but uh, was with us in the fall and will be back uh, next fall. So we're going to be on break for the summer. We'll have some episodes from some other podcasts that you, we think you might enjoy. Maybe some replays. Maybe we'll replay the episode with Francis Lee since that came up a couple times today. But we will be back with new episodes at the end of August. So for Candace and Chris and Michael and the whole team, I'm Jenna Spinelli. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.